This podcast on autoethnography kicks off the final four podcasts, three of which are about qualitative research that's not traditional, such as visual representations, and then the final podcast covering representing reflexivity. The remaining four podcasts highlight part two of my book, Writing and Representing Qualitative Research, published by SAGE. Part two, focusing on aesthetic representations of qualitative research, is first for researchers who wish to begin exploring or find a way back to subjectivity, science imbued with emotion and art, and research which may be full of joy, pain, and happiness. Many of these scholars are researchers first, but some of us started in the arts and lost our way as we stumbled through higher education degrees, tenure attainments, traps of neutrality, third person, barren language, crippled with self-doubt and gagged by the dominant majority, beginning to believe that there was but one way to be a good researcher. Second, part two of this book is for those of us who have embraced what Sandra Faulkner calls being a bad, and now she says this in all caps, B-A-D exclamation point, social scientist, being a bad social scientist. Even if this is a position that you'll never embrace, it's helpful to understand what other qualitative colleagues are attempting to do. All of us could improve the accessibility of our research for broader audiences by drawing on just some of the ideas within part two of this book. Third, I wrote part two for novices who may be, as I was, unsure how to obtain solid mentoring, isolated and adrift. I want these researchers to know they have a community of scholars eager to welcome them into the academy and ready and willing to think and grow with them. Most of us love research, the enactment of a detailed plan, exploring the world through others' eyes, that sudden pop of discovery. More of us could love writing, the recreation of thoughts that propel, the detailings of others' worlds, the crisp crackle of a well-turned phrase. If you want to know when the next podcast is posted, find previous podcasts, infographics, and more, make your way to my website, marialayman.com, and opt into my communications. We are in the public hall of a lab with doctor. I have just finished a procedure that allows the doctor to assess the state of my remaining fallopian tube. Doctor tells us the tube is blocked and that in this condition, I am infertile. We stare at the carpet, illuminated by fluorescent lights. This is a public setting, so we try to be numb. I am infertile. I found out in a public hallway, under a fluorescent light, by a dusty plant. The plant is as infertile as I am, and now I will gather dust. Paula Coelho said, Writing is a socially acceptable form of getting naked in public. We see this idea in autoethnography, except it is not always socially acceptable in higher education. So there is an additional layer of vulnerability. The excerpt I read from an autoethnography I wrote is an example of this vulnerability. I've since that time gone on to very joyfully have two children, but it's still a vulnerable reading. Shedding light on a matter of interest in ways that are new or unexpected, Turning perspectives inside out, upside down, creating a kaleidoscope of knowing is one goal or outcome of qualitative research. I pass a collection of kaleidoscopes around in class when we're considering autoethnography and reflexivity. Similar to aspects of its definition, reflecting an endless variety of variegated changing scenes and patterns, a diverse collection, 
using light and reflection, a kaleidoscope is a fitting metaphor for autoethnography. Autoethnographies offer a kaleidoscope of knowing through the stories we thought were clear or had simply left, either knowingly or unknowingly, untold. The methodological writing around autoethnography can be highly theoretical, so in this podcast, which is reflective of the book chapter, I try to present autoethnography in an accessible manner while providing resources for those who wish to dig further. Due to time, I will only cover types of autoethnography. The book additionally walks readers through the process of creating an autoethnography. So pause the podcast at this point, uh, if you're able, and write about these questions for five minutes. What are some key experiences and or positionalities of yours that you wish to explore in depth that others might benefit from? Consider including major life turning points, epiphanies, loss, intersection of identities, and identities that may be unknown, underrepresented, or misunderstood by majority groups. These, of course, are just some of the many possibilities to consider. How best can you begin to develop these experiences into short vignettes or a storyline that others will be able to engage with? Are you in a safe space to deeply consider your new writing project? So carry what you journaled about along with you as we engage with the rest of the podcast. In 2011, Dane pointed out, much academic writing sounds the same, stilted, distant, and overly qualified. And I would say that autoethnography offers a different voice of the academy. Autoethnography literally means self-culture writing, and it's grown in prominence in higher education over the past, I would say, about three decades, as evidenced by journals and conferences that feature autoethnography, and then in 2020, the launch of the Journal of Autoethnography. Autoethnography has been described by Stacey Holman-Jones as setting a scene, telling a story, weaving intricate connections among life and art, experience and theory, and then letting go and hoping for readers who will bring careful attention to your words in the context of their own lives. Carolyn Ellis and Art Bachner wrote, To understand autoethnography, it's helpful to think of this methodology as a combination of autobiography, narrative inquiry, and ethnography. It is an examination of a personal culture as related to the larger culture. So the major subgenres of autoethnography include heartful autoethnography, which could also be called emotive or evocative, critical autoethnography, multivocal, and then the different emergent forms. I review these extensively in the book, but will provide just a quick description here so you can get a sense of the field. Carolyn Ellis developed the original autoethnography, sometimes termed as heartful, and when she wrote heartful, she italicized the word art within the word heart to emphasize the art aspects of this type of autoethnography. She's also described it as emotive and evocative, where the researcher seems to, and I would say simply, deceptively, seems to very simply write about their personal experience. These writings are profoundly personal in nature and may be crafted without direct reference to outside sources. At other time, personal sources are referenced and either interwoven with the text in a seemingly effortless fashion or offset by italics, footnotes, text boxes, or some other literary device. Personal sources may include diaries, journals, quoted conversations, cards, emails, composites of characters or conversations, tweets, letters, and family heirlooms in the form of images inserted into the autoethnography, and then many more, as big as your imagination. 
So a brief description of critical autoethnography. Even as critical researchers seek to understand the intersection of identities as related to power and dismantle oppressive forces, critical autoethnographers seek to deepen understandings of these global purposes through the personal. Critical autoethnography allows researchers to explore the personal and explicitly connect it to the larger political culture in ways that shed light on issues of oppression, intersectionality, and power situated within theory. So the multi-voiced autoethnographies are autoethnographies characterized by more than one author writing together reflexively to share and explore the tangled yarn of relationships. Multiple authors allow researchers to evocatively explore an experience from many perspectives. Working with a diverse group of autoethnographers allows us to explore varying experiences always situated within larger systems of culture, power, oppression, and social privilege. Here, the kaleidoscope is viewed through a plural gaze rather than a singular one. Emergent areas in autoethnography parallel developments in qualitative research in general. Poetry, performances, visuals, images, videos, art-informed, collage, and so on. This is an excerpt from a heartful, emotive autoethnography of mine titled Beneath the Lemon Tree, An Interrupted Family Story. Mom died both unexpectedly during the writing of this autoethnography and expectedly over 10 days, dying with grace as she struggled against intense pain due to an unsuccessful heart surgery. Having conceived of the autoethnography and discussed it at length with her several times during the initial writing, yet having her dead during the final writing, editing, and submission process means this story represents even more clearly the bittersweet aspects of a lemon. Exhausted after all the death rituals, hunkered down at home, my young children and I at my spouse's suggestion have baked a memorial lemon meringue pie. I take a first bite from my slice. The yellow layer is a stunning burst of color against the white meringue, and I hold back tears, not wanting to weep as the meringue does on my fork. I give my leg a quick, sharp pinch under the table, as mom did when I was young and not behaving during mealtime. This is a time for celebration. Tears will have plenty of time later. The tart tang of lemon and the sweet meringue Recall my relationship with mom as I savor the history of my interrupted family narratives on my tongue. I want to make a final point about the finality of the written word. Autoethnographers will need to be aware of the permanence of their writing. I've had my autoethnographic writing referenced in very startling context. Do not publish anything you will be unwilling to encounter in unexpected settings. If you want to know when the next podcast is posted, find previous podcasts, make your way to my website, marialayman.com. Autoethnographers are drawn to the personal story as a moth to a flame. The fire may warm or it may burn. Autoethnographers dwell in the subjective, crafting the personal into a form that allows readers and viewers to experience the unfamiliar and familiar in new and proactive ways. Autoethnographic power comes through the viewing and representing the kaleidoscope of story that is personal experience.